0: Well, as we turn to Psalm 16 in our summer psalm series, this is going to be the last psalm we'll cover for this portion of the series. Lord willing, we'll pick up this series in, uh, in summers to come. But this morning, we get to end for the time being on a, on a real good one. <laughs> of course, all the psalms are God's word and therefore good. But Psalm 16 is a special psalm because it's so clearly points to the glory of Christ and the joy that we have in him. You know, this series we've called Summer Psalms Refresh Your Soul in God. I hope this last oasis that we stop at this morning will refresh your soul as we move into our fall season of ministry. Next week, doing a, a message on the Lord's Day, and then we will return to our walk through the Bible series, the Lord's Day, after that. Before we get into Psalm 16 this morning, I do need to give one preface that... What I'm going to preach to you this morning from Psalm 16 is not a false prosperity gospel. What I preached to you this morning is not a false prosperity gospel. And I'm going to explain why at the end of this message. But as I look out... Around the fjord in Norway, I was thinking about this this week, working in the new office space right on the fjord. You get to see the boats go by, and there's been some magnificent boats that have gone by that have to cost, I mean, just tens of millions of kroner. We've seen some magnificent ships go by of all shapes and sizes. As As I look out on the fjord, and I don't know if you do this too, there's a lot of things I would love to have, you know, well, you guys, most of you know I love to fish. I love a big fishing boat. Wouldn't that be fun? I'd love to have time to go fishing all the time. You see some of these beautiful Norwegian houses that have these beautiful uh, utziks. Uh, I probably butchered that Norwegian word, but beautiful views and vistas of the fjords and of the, of the fjells of the mountains. And people that have these beautiful cabins, you know, and you, you wonder how on earth do they afford all this stuff? You know, there's lots of things that I would love to have. You probably feel the same way. And then I, th- I do know that um, Norwegians as individuals, along with many in the West, are deeply in debt. The country has a lot of money, but, but per capita, a lot of people are in debt. So a lot of what we see is, is kind of, um, it kind of is deceiving. It's, it's all borrowed. But certainly there is, there is definitely multi-generational wealth. We can certainly see that here in Stavanger. And, of course, the same is true in all sorts of places in the world. And, and I'm thinking particularly in the West, though I'm sure in the East also. Multi-generational wealth that allows people to have these amazing sailboats or these amazing houses or drive these amazing cars or go on amazing vacations or do whatever it is they want to do or not have to work at all and just simply live a life of leisure Right. And I think if we're all honest, there's part of us that we would we wouldn't mind we wouldn't mind those things. Right? But what if I were to tell you? What if I said that you are the heir of the richest person in the universe? How would that change the way you think and feel in the present? What I'm going to argue today, showing you from Psalm 16 and then reflecting more broadly in Scripture, is that God is our inheritance along with everything else. God is our inheritance along with everything else. And the key to that is Christ. God is our inheritance along with everything else. And the key to that is Christ. And the way that I'm going to defend this argument this morning is that first I'm going to show you that David points to it in Psalm 16. And then I'm going to take you to the New Testament and show how the apostles reveal its fulfillment in Christ. And then at the end, I'm going to distinguish this true gospel from the false prosperity gospel that is so prevalent today. So we'll look at those things this morning. So number one, we learn from Psalm 16 that God is our inheritance. God is our inheritance. David's joy is grounded in God and in God's people. Look with me in verse 2, where David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Everything in David's life is grounded and centered on the goodness of God. His hope is in nothing else. It's not in his retirement plan or job security, although he had pretty good job security because of the covenant that God made with David in his house. His His happiness is not grounded in the material possessions that the Lord blessed him with. And in fact, as he says he has no good apart from you, he's saying that there's no other place in this world that can give me good apart from God. God is the center of David's universe. God is the chief affection in David's heart. I have no good apart from you. And look how David contrasts that with uh, pagans around him and other, uh, perhaps even Israelites, as we know from their history, who have fallen into paganism. Look at verse 4, where he'll go down and say that he contrasts his affections with the sorrows of those who run after another god, which shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So at the start of the psalm, David is confessing that the only good in his life is God. It's his chief; He's his chief delight and joy. But notice also that when God is the sole source of David's good and blessing, how it is also connected horizontally to God's people. Because look what David says immediately after verse 2. In verse 3, he says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. In whom is all my delight. This is why it is so funny if you've ever met somebody that says they're a Christian and they never go to church. They, or they'll say, I love God, but they have no love for God's people. David is showing us that if God is your alone good and joy, that what comes with God is his family, his people, so that David can simultaneously say, I have no good apart from the Lord, and yet all my delight is in God's people. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. As David is showing us that God is His inheritance. He goes on to this psalm, uh, look down in verse five and six, with the heart of the psalm, right in the center of this psalm. We see the heart of the matter where David says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Not only does God reach down and call David, and anoint David, but David in turn says that the Lord is my chosen portion and cup. It's not just enough that God would save us; He wants us to delight in Him to say He is my chosen portion. So that if if uh, someone were to say, "Just name one thing in the world that you want," you know, what's the one thing in the world that you would want? For David, he would say, "The Lord." the Lord, he wouldn't say a car, he wouldn't say riches, he wouldn't say even wisdom, he'd say, give me the Lord, he's my chosen portion and cup. And in reflecting that, even in the midst of all of David's sufferings that he went through as God's anointed, look what he says, he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, indeed I have a beautiful inheritance. And as we'll see it's the greatest possible inheritance that is his and ours. He continues reflecting on God as his inheritance in verse 8. He says, "I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand I shall not be shaken." And then finally, one of the most glorious Passages and all of scripture, and a key text in the first sermon preached in the New Testament church are these amazing words that we could spend a lifetime thinking about. Verse 11 You make known to me the path of life, in your presence there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures. Forevermore. Can you imagine fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore? It's very hard to conceive. And this is how David describes the path of life that God, by his covenant grace, made known to him and to God's people, the excellent ones who will inherit eternity with him. So David's joy is grounded in God. And in God's people, this beautiful inheritance that awaits them. We also see in Psalm 16 that David's joy is rooted in God's unshakable preservation of him for that inheritance. Just as God is the inheritance, there's not a lot of hope if you're not sure if you're going to make it to the inheritance. Right? In a human setting, the only way you get the inheritance is if you stay alive to receive it. And David's got a lot of enemies. There seems to be a lot of things that could separate David from the inheritance, including death. But David says that his inheritance is unshakable. Verse 8, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David is saying, because God is with me right here at my right hand, I have nothing to fear. He's got the best bodyguard in the universe right at his side. You know, that would make the Secret Service look like a couple kids with pea shooters, right? Because God's right here at my right hand, David says. I shall not be shaken. The inheritance is unshakable. In verse 10, we see that even the grave cannot stop it. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is the Old Testament concept or understanding of the underworld or the place of waiting where you would await for judgment or reward. And David says, you're not going to abandon my soul there or let your Holy One see corruption. The grave cannot even stop the inheritance. And as we see in the entirety of the psalm, going back to verse 1, we have this top and tail of preservation. This beginning and end. it's bookended with God preserving David. All of Psalm 16 is the answer to David's prayer in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. You know, I said at the beginning, you know, there's a lot of things that I'd love to have in Probably we could go around and spend a lot of time talking about your dreams and hopes and aspirations that if you could organize your your life the way you could, this is what I'd like to have or do or be. We've learned from David that only God and what serves his ends like his people will bring you joy. only God. We have no good apart from God. And like David, all of our delight should be in God's people. So even as we gather this morning, this should be the the chief delight. It's to gather with God's people, whether you're in this church or another church, to be gathered with the saints, to glorify God together, to hope in him together. That's the only thing that will bring us lasting joy in this world while we wait for the greatest of all inheritances to come at the end of days. So, I want to ask you a question before we move on. What are the things that you are attempting to place your joy in or to get joy from that are apart from God? And they can be good common grace gifts food or jobs or or love or relationships or family or experiences, those in themselves are not necessarily bad. But when they become the main thing, they're going to let you down every time. They will not give you any lasting joy. So I would encourage you to, as an exercise this week, to write down those things. What are the things you typically run to for hope or joy that are going to fail you in the end, that are apart from God and what God has ordained for you to do. Because I want to experience true joy, and I want you to experience true and lasting joy that will go with you through the grave, through the resurrection, and into eternity. And so that none of us waste our our lives pursuing things that will bring no lasting happiness. Okay. Let's move on then to our second point in this argument that God is our inheritance and the greatest possible inheritance. That's number 2, Christ is the key to the inheritance. Christ is the key to the inheritance. And here you can uh, keep your bibles open if you like. We're going to reflect on a on a few key New Testament texts that tie into Psalm 16 and this, this broader idea of our inheritance in Christ. First of all, in Acts 2, our scripture, which was our scripture reading this morning, Peter shows that Jesus is the heir of Psalm 16. He shows us that Jesus is the heir of Psalm 16. Turn with me to Acts 2. And let's look at verses 36 and following. Uh, before Before I read 36, just look up again at verse 25. Because it is here that Psalm 16 is cited and quoted. So whenever the apostles quote a text of the Old Testament, it's worth taking note. And in verse twenty-five, Peter, in making this defense in this first sermon of the New Testament church on the day of Pentecost, of all the places of Scripture that David could go or that sorry, that Peter could go to, he goes to Psalm sixteen. Because Psalm sixteen is all about the preservation of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ. And I won't I won't read it because we've already gone through Psalm sixteen, but Peter is citing Psalm 16 and those last precious verses that we have just covered. That you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. And you've made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So Peter goes on to talk about the reality that these things are fulfilled in Jesus. That Jesus is the heir of these things mentioned in Psalm 16. And as a response to that, those listening cried out, and we read, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Dave, or Peter, excuse me, I keep confusing them. Peter is citing David in this sermon. And he's saying... In verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, calling David a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. David as a prophet is speaking about Christ in Psalm 16, as Peter tells us right here. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And in response to this, Those hearing were cut to the heart. So I want to, as we reflect on the New Testament, just give you four things that teach that we're co-heirs with Christ in this inheritance. First, Peter shows us in Acts 2 that the means of the inheritance is repentance and baptism. Baptism is synonymous with faith in the New Testament. Those things go together. They are, of course, two different things. But those of faith were also baptized. That's why Peter can say repent and be baptized. Where elsewhere you'll see repent and believe. These things are treated synonymously often by the apostles. Repent and believe. Repent and be baptized. It means become a disciple. The way you become a, a co-heir with Christ of the greatest possible inheritance in the universe is by repenting of your sins. and being joined to Christ's body through baptism, through that expression of faith. The apostles will also talk about how we, like David and like Christ, are preserved for this inheritance. So Peter also says in his letter, so Peter just preached the sermon, but it wasn't a one-off thing for Peter. This is a regular theme for Peter. And in 1 Peter... He talks about how we've been born again to a living hope. In 1 Peter 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, an inheritance, here's our theme again, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's guarded in heaven Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Look how Peter, in his reflection in this first letter that he writes to a suffering church, he talks about your inheritance in heaven is kept for you, it's undefiled, it's unfaded, and you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. This theme was not a one-off in the Old Testament. It's our great hope, and it's the hope that apostles like Peter begin with in their letters. So we've seen that Jesus is the means. We've seen that through the resurrection of Christ, we also will be preserved. Our inheritance will be preserved in heaven. We also see from Paul in Ephesians 1, he begins his letter to the church at Ephesus, and this was a cyclical letter that was meant to go to other churches too. He begins with the inheritance also. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He goes on with the same thing, and I won't read the whole text, but of what our spiritual inheritance is in Christ. And he even carries forward the theme of being guarded for it as well by the holy spirit. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This is Ephesians 1:13, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised holy spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So this idea of the heavenly inheritance is central to the good news of the gospel. It is central to the good news of the gospel. So that if we merely view the gospel as repent and believe and be saved, we're actually truncating, we're reducing the good news of the gospel. What are we saved for? God, in his great mercy that we do not in any way deserve, has saved us. Four, the greatest possible inheritance in the universe. To see God himself who is the fullness of joy and to dwell in his new creation, world without end, where there will be no sin or sorrow or thorns or thistles. The fullness of the gospel is that we get God which we do not in any way deserve by faith in Christ. And that's a central message of the apostles to the degree that both Peter and Paul begin their letters with it. And the Holy Spirit himself is the guarantor in us, the promise of that inheritance to come. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the means. We see that we're preserved For this inheritance, we learn that every spiritual blessing has already been given to us. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee of it. And lastly, we see in Romans 8, in case we're not quite sure yet about the all things, getting the all things part of it, Paul shows us that God's people truly do with Christ get to inherit all things. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about how the creation is eagerly waiting the revealing of the sons of God. Romans eight nineteen, Creation itself is as if creation was a person. So Paul's giving the creation like human-like feelings, right, to make a point. Creation itself is eagerly waiting for the revealing of God's people to be vindicated on earth and to be let free into the new creation and creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of god verse 23 and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our of our bodies this full experience of being god's people when our bodies are raised From the dead and glorified, that will be the full sense of the adoption that we speak about. And creation in ourselves, we groan waiting for this inheritance to come. And Paul, in one of the most amazing verses of the New Testament, in verse 32, gives us this promise of all things, inheriting all things. Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, we have no right to this inheritance, but in Christ, We get everything with him. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So we've seen this theme of all things, all creation, all things. And again, Paul picks up the theme of preservation, the unshakability of this promise for Paul concludes in Romans 8, in verse 37, Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, our inheritance is the greatest possible inheritance. And the guarantee of that inheritance is unshakable because it is God who guards us through faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have an unshakable hope like David, an unshakable confidence of our beautiful inheritance that we have in part now through the spiritual blessings that are parted, and that we will have in the new creation of all the spiritual and physical blessings being consummated as we rule with Christ in the new creation. There are, of course, other texts we could go to, but we'll leave it with those this morning. So we've seen that God is the inheritance along with everything and that Christ is the key to the inheritance, I want to close, then, by distinguishing this true gospel from the false prosperity gospel. And we'll do this in brief. What separates the gospel that, that I just preached, and that I believe is what Scripture preaches, or I hope I wouldn't preach it, I believe this is what Scripture teaches, what distinguishes that from the false prosperity gospel of the Joel Osteens of the world and of the the Kenneth Copelands and all the other health and wealth preachers? What is the difference? What makes one true and one false? I'm just going to give you some categories in brief to think about. So number one, the true gospel focuses on all our delight being in God and in his church, God and in his people, In his church. His church is his people. All our delight. If you believe the true gospel, our aim, we don't always do it perfectly, our delight is aimed to be in God and in his people. But with the false prosperity gospel, the chief delight is in things and what we can get. Okay? That's the difference. The true gospel, it's about all of our delight being in God and his people. The false gospel is all our delight is in things and whatever we can get or from whom we can get it. Another example, number two, the true gospel shows that our possessions are for God's service in the building up of Christ's church. So all the things we could ever hope we could have are for the purpose of building up and serving the church and God's appointed ends. That's part of the true gospel. But the false prosperity gospel preaches possessions for self-service, to have your best life now, to serve your needs and your ends. That's a false gospel. How about number three? The true gospel teaches that God is your joy. God is your alone good and happiness. While the false gospel teaches that God is the means to your joy. God's the sugar daddy to give you things to serve whatever you want to do. He's like a genie in a bottle. I want this so that you can just go and do that. God is just a transactional means to get and serve your selfish ends. That's the false prosperity gospel. But number four, the aim of the gospel is to be mature in Christ. For example, Paul preaches to the Colossians and he says uh, that to this we serve and to this we preach that we might present everyone mature in Christ. Christ Christ-likeness is the goal. So mature in Christ. While the false prosperity gospel end is to be, is to mature your bank account. The true gospels be mature in Christ. The false gospel is mature your bank account, mature your wealth and possessions, and security now. And I'll give you one last one. Number five: the true gospel shows that the chief end is God's glory and the love of neighbor. Okay? Love God and love our neighbor. As Jesus said, those are the two greatest commandments. You know, or as what Paul says to the first Corinthians, or to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10 do everything for the glory of God. While the false prosperity gospel, its chief end is personal vanity. So we're living for God's glory or personal vanity. That's the distinguishing mark. Notice just, if you want to just illustrate this in a simple way, if you are living in light of the true gospel, your life has an arrow going this way and an arrow going out this way, if you're here, okay? You're living for God's glory and for the good of those around you. All right? That's where the arrows are pointing. But in the false prosperity gospel, you're here and the arrow's pointing this way. You're serving your ends. And your relationships even are transactional to meet your ends. And it's all pointing at you. It's the exact opposite. So that's the difference between the true gospel and the true inheritance that David points to in Christ and that the apostles preach about and the false prosperity gospel that's eroding and deceiving so many people around the world. And that is, as Paul says, Uh, Let that gospel be damned, Galatians 1. It is no gospel at all. Let it be anathema. Conclusion then, brothers and sisters, we've seen today that in Christ, I hope you can refresh your souls in this as we bring our summer series to a close for now, that in Christ you are heir to the richest being in the universe. And in Christ, you get not only God, but everything. But in a holy and glorious way, not in a selfish, self-centered, corrupt way. There's two foundational texts, I want to end with this, for the Christian life. Psalm 16 is one of them. And 1 Corinthians 10, which I just mentioned a moment ago is the other. 1 Corinthians 10:31. whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And then this text, which we read this morning, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those are two chief texts for the Christian life that link God's glory and true holy joy together. True, real, lasting heavenly happiness. Two things that work together. And that's why we confess as a church in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If I were to edit that statement, to enjoy him with God's people forever, right? But to enjoy him forever is to enjoy him with God's people forever. So my closing application encouragement to you is that you would refresh your soul in God by rejoicing in his love for you in Christ, who has made us heirs with him of the greatest possible inheritance in the universe and one we will enjoy together, world without end. Amen. Let's pray.